But the monopoly is created by the physical infrastructure exactly. of those particular things. And, and so, yes, that, that does need to be replaced. Hello, you are listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. My name is Lisa Gonzalez. In episode 80 of the podcast, we introduced you to Eric Lampland, founder and principal consultant at Lookout Point Communications. In that episode, Chris and Eric discussed indirect cost savings from municipal networks. This week, Eric stopped by our Minneapolis office for a discussion about open access today and in the future. We find that many of the communities we study that deploy or consider municipal broadband networks see an open access arrangement as the preferred business model. Traditionally, this would mean that the municipality would provide the infrastructure and providers would offer commercial or residential services to customers over the infrastructure. We also find that a large percentage of those communities find it difficult to implement this model. In our conversation, we dig into some common challenges associated with municipal open access networks. We also talk about some possible cures, and we look at how the very definition of the term open access is changing. Every week, we bring you the Community Broadband Bits podcast advertisement free. Please consider contributing in any amount to help us continue carrying on this service. Just visit ILSR.org and click on the orange Donate button. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell. Today I'm in the office with Lisa Gonzalez. Hey there. And we've got Eric Lamplin back, the founder and principal consultant for Lookout Point Communications. It's good to be here with you, Chris. Thank you for coming back in, Eric. We had a great conversation about two weeks ago, and I fouled up the recording. So we're going to attempt to recreate that, and I really appreciate your patience and and coming back in to once again discuss open access with me. We've discussed open access, I think, for about 10 years. So doing this a couple of times is not an issue. (laughs) Yes, we've been talking about it a long time. It's been a passion of yours, which is why I wanted to have you in here. And you've worked with a number of communities that have, uh, I think, followed a similar trend that we've seen in the industry, which is that most communities fundamentally would prefer to build the infrastructure but not engage in the service competition with a Comcast or an AT&T or someone like that. Even though most cities would prefer not to engage in that level of competition, we find that most cities ultimately do end up engaging in that level of competition. I was hoping that you would help us to sort that out a little bit. Why is it that cities that would prefer open access ultimately often find they can't make it work? I think the simple reason is that it's very difficult to get legacy providers to operate their services across other people's infrastructures. Uh, And so there hasn't been an option not to produce your own retail services. So you and I are in St. Paul. And if St. Paul built a fiber optic network in this mythical future where we have a mayor that cares about the future of our community, um, (laughs) not that I feel personally about this, um, what you're identifying as the problem is that the uh, Comcast and CenturyLink would refuse to use a fiber optic network that was even superior to what they had in the ground. Uh, They're the legacy providers that you're identifying. Right. Well, the intention, the old business model for service providers is is a simple one, and that is that they own the customer by owning the connection to the home or to the business. And when you take that business model and you take away the connection, that doesn't reflect well on the way they've set their business models. 
So when you're talking about the legacy providers, you're talking about Comcast and CenturyLink, and they they just don't have an interest in using an even superior fiber optic network that a city may build. They have an interest in using a superior fiber optic network if they built it, but right. they don't have an interest in building uh, in using somebody else's. Right. And I think one of the reasons for that is that these are companies that are fundamentally built on a business model that was not one that was existing in a competitive environment. And that, frankly, it would be difficult for them to suddenly change tens of thousands of employees to be operating in a competitive environment. I don't want to speak directly to to why uh, to what the change would be for legacy providers, because I don't think they know it. I think it's rather it's just simply that they're comfortable doing what they do mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they're not comfortable entering into a different monetization approach to which they do not understand. The result of that is regardless of what their reasons are, and I think you're absolutely correct that they probably don't even know. I mean, <laughs> I'm always worried about giving too much agency to massive bureaucratic organizations. Right. They're, they're, they don't have a cohesive set of interests. They have competing interests that are fighting within their own bureaucracy. So let's leave that to the side and let's look at what that means for a city then. So a city that wants to build this network, because they know the legacy operators will not operate on it, I think that changes the approach that a city can use. You can't just go out and borrow $100 million or $300 million if you're a big city to build a network if you are not going to have significant buy-in from the legacy operators and you want to use an open access system. Is that right? Um well, that is, that is correct. There are actually multiple models in which a municipality can pay for a fiber infrastructure today. Okay. One of those models, and the traditional approach, is to pay for them out of re- retail services. And within that model, and as a subset of that model, uh, open access has been thought to solve certain other kinds of political problems. Uh, okay, so we have now this is open access as a solution to a political problem. Correct. What is that political problem? The political problem is that many governments do not feel that they are in a position to compete with the private sector uh, and that they would like to enable the private sector. It's interesting that in this particular section of the economy, that particular point of view uh, is maintained, whereas in other sectors of the economy, We've passed that, that, that view. There was a long time ago when sewer systems were pri- private, when electrical systems were completely, uh, you know, individually competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can look back on, you know, even roadways that do that type of thing. But the, but the truth is that we as a society have moved forward uh, to a point where cities are very comfortable in providing roads and sewers and water and so forth and so on. But but in this sector, they have not yet made that transition. Right. And I think it remains to be seen whether we'll live in a future where 10, 15 years down the road, we'll have a monopoly regime saying, mm-hmm. recognizing that, that fiber optic networks are a natural monopoly and that mm-hmm. there is no viable way to have real competition when you have private ownership or or this or that. I frankly don't actually think we're going to get there for mm-hmm. for broadband and, and internet type services, but I, I think it's an interesting conversation. Um, but one thing I want to note is that even though we've started on how open access is very difficult, 
um, we have seen cities that have figured out ways of moving forward with it. Uh, we've seen Danville, we've seen Palm Coast, uh, Fast Roads, there's uh, all those uh, public utility districts in Washington State. Uh, many of them have built in an incremental type fashion. Um, the Washington State ones have not found a way in all cases of paying down their debt, and many of those have wholesale power sources of revenue. So they have extra money floating around, and they're used to cross-subsidizing for um, you know, sewers. So they may not have an issue with building some of this infrastructure. But in places that absolutely want the network to pay for itself, uh, where you want only the revenues of the network to pay for the cost of having built the network, it seems like the most viable model has been this slow incremental expansion. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure I agree with that. Um, but and, and I think that there's something that's important that's, in, that's implied in, in your comment, and that is, what is the definition of open access? Uh, in the cases of Danville and, and the various different other places that you mentioned, um, the approach to open access has to either do with uh, the selling of components of the physical infrastructure, such as fiber optics, dark fiber we call it, uh, or the allowance of people to use exclusively some part of the infrastructure. Uh, that's a very limited view of open access, in my opinion. Uh, so let me just let me just push this out a little bit. You okay. and I were recently in Salt Lake City. Yes. And this is something that I've heard regularly with criticism with regard to Utopia, which mm -hmm. is that it's an open access network, but for the most part, you can only buy vanilla from different people, right? <laughs> you, there's, you don't have 31 flavors. <laughs> you really have, you know, a whole bunch of different companies that are selling one flavor. And I yeah. think that's what you're getting at here is you have a different vision for how open access could work and you think should work. There are multiple aspects of this. I think the the large piece, which I won't address right away, is the perspective of open access as we see it in places around the country now uh, is really an orientation to providers. It is how a provider can use that access to obtain customers. Uh, but once obtained, those customers belong to that provider. Uh, so it's really a... It's a bit of the same version of what we have today. Mm -hmm. um, the other side of that is uh, a customer-oriented open access in which the customer has the ability to elect the choice of open access or the choice of provider and indeed may have multiple providers at the same location. Uh, that is not, we haven't seen that type of open access yet but when you say, develop. When you say services and providers, mm -hmm. what I'm confused about is, you know, in Utopia, you have a choice of many different providers. Right. Now, they're all pretty much selling the same thing. Uh -huh. Now, I think what well, your question is basically, you know, is how can we set this up so that those service providers actually have differentiated offerings? No, what I'm really saying is that you know, in, in, in normal marketplaces that we have, if you're buying jeans, for example, right, you have a lot of people who sell jeans, but they have found ways to differentiate their products, this jean to that jean. It might be the design on the back pocket or, or it might be the fit, however it's so determined. There's no reason in the world that video, for example, uh, video services, entertainment services, can't find similar differentiations. And when they find those similar or those differentiations, then open access within the, the video service arena 
would be something that would probably be welcomed by many people. Today, unfortunately, we still are stuck with the fact that in, our, in the case that we're making an example of here at video services, that video services are thought to have some hundreds of channels, <laughs> most of which you don't watch, and has a fairly large price. And as long as you have two competitors that are doing exactly the same thing, then you're right. There's no differentiation of service and there's no benefit to the customer or to the provider. So the, the notion on services is really kind of twofold when you get into open access. The first is, do we have competitive understandings or do we have differentiated services between providers of a given aspect of service, such as video, such as voice, such as various different kinds of healthcare services and so forth. The second piece of that comes into play in that most people are making conversations about what has traditionally been thought of as communication services, that thing that we call triple play, voice, video, and data. But in fiber optic networks, we're talking about uh, orders of magnitude and capacity that are greater in fiber than there are in than than in the copper infrastructures of today, and so the types of services that will begin to occur in an open access network are much greater than just voice, video, and data. Uh, certainly, some providers like Comcast have actually included things like home security. Right? Well, home security is an easy extra service. Right? Mm -hmm. But healthcare is an easy extra service. Right? And if you wanted to do something with your Fitbit, uh, you know, wrist, and somebody had had uh, a service that al amalgamated that with your trainer at the local the local gym, um, that would be a different service. All right. Right. However, what, what I think I hear, when I hear you say that, my thought is, well, what you're describing are things that are data, and so mm. you know, at home right now, I have Comcast. And I could have a home security system riding over my Comcast connection, and I can do some uh, home healthcare type stuff over my Comcast data connection. So how would your vision of open access differ from my idea, which is that I have a data connection and I can do a hundred different things over that? Well, I think that's kind of interesting that you, you think of the data connection okay, as... Um, something where you can do hundreds of things over it, but you think of a fiber optic network as where you can only do three things over it. The fact of the matter is, everything we do over networks today is a data connection, whether it's voice, video, or these things that we think of as internet, right? If, for example, I had a service that I offered out of my local gym that was uh, your or my, pre preferably me, <laughs> uh, physical training activity, and that the service that, that was offered actually included tracking uh, my physical activity doing, during the course of the day that brought it back to my trainer at the gym and so forth and so on. Could I run that as a, a web-initiated type service? Well, I could, okay? But when I think, uh, in, in fact, that I've got a local function here, going through the expense of a web service and a local level may not be the best way to do that service. There may be many alternatives about doing that kind of delivery of service. So, you know, when we think in terms of a web application, we think in terms of a large scale aggregation of of clients, when we think of terms of a local application, we think of a, a smaller group of clients with a more focused need. The range 
of services is much greater than we currently generally think about. So where do you feel that we are in terms of these differentiated services now? I mean, how close are we to getting that type of thing now? It's emerging rapidly. Uh, and it will, it, you know, one of the things that you have to be careful about, that I have to be careful about, I've been in this business for a long, long time. And a long, long time ago, we didn't foresee many of the web services that we have available today. Uh, and today we, we would only enjoy the wonder of these emerging services when they actually occur. Mm -hmm. You um, didn't foresee the Yo app on the smartphones? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't foresee a lot. <laughs> but, but healthcare services, for example, that involve uh, children at schools, your own doctor, the specialists that might service your family or your school, the parents that might get involved, is a very localized service healthcare function that is not a web type based orientation. So there are many things that come forward. Farmers in the field who measure the water in their in their underground wells to determine what kind of irrigation is a local service. It's not something that you do at a national level, right? Uh, or an international level. So, uh, so what the services will be specifically B, uh, we certainly have good examples of, of services that are beyond voice, video, and data. Okay? It's all data. <laughs> it, it doesn't well, make me, any difference anymore. Let me ask you this. <laughs> so right now, one of the drawbacks of what I've been describing, which is thinking of, my, of, the, of the fact that I get a Comcast connection and I can use that to watch Netflix. Well, it turns out that the way the network's architected, Comcast makes decisions that impact Netflix's ability to deliver me content. And similarly, if you and I, who we live a mile and a half mm -hmm. apart from each other, wanted to have some sort of a direct connection to each other, and we're both on Comcast, well, those packets might take this incredible route all the way down through St. Louis or something like that. Right. So, you know, how, how does that sort of architecture play into the, um, the fact that we may want to have a network that's built where we keep more traffic locally and that sort of thing? Any... Decent network architecture attempts to localize as much common traffic as possible. And that's been true in this business for a long, long time. Uh, I think I want to pick on your example a little differently if I can. Okay? Um, you never do what I ask you to. So I know. <laughs> it's just the way I am. <laughs> if you're, you're talking about you and I both having a choice of Comcast and they're limiting a certain amount of traffic of one kind or another, or, or the performance is not as good. Um, this is exactly what we want to see in open access. We want to see uh, another company other than Comcast be available to the user to, who doesn't do that type of limitation. And that is product differentiation, the, kind of the standard form we expect in competition. If those two are available on an open access network, Comcast and our hypothetical other company, uh, then we leave it to the customer to make a choice of the product he chooses to buy. Mm -hmm. and, and thereby, the kinds of behaviors that we see today in legacy providers, it will be their own incentive not to do so, not to create bad behavior, okay? mm -hmm. because they'll lose customers if they do. Right, if they have the choice. 
Now, I think one of the next questions, though, is if we have this open access network, um, but it's been built basically copying a Comcast-style architecture because someone like me says, you know what we really need? We need gigabit internet access. And let's build this network so we have gigabit internet access, right? We're going to offer one service, internet, (laughs) right? (laughs) Which is how I think a lot of people think about it. Um, How do design choices that we make in building that network, regardless of whether it's open access, if we just see it as being a one-service network, I understand the irony of describing the internet as a one-service network, but but I think you know what I mean, the idea of just having a big pipe of transferring packets. How, how will we build the network to make sure that we can accommodate your vision of open access? I think there are two things I want to say. The first is the internet today is an example of a perfectly open access network. There is customers who choose which sites to go to. They are customers who choose which sites not to go to, and it's totally within the customer's control. Now, when you think of that model and you try and put it into this other form that we've had, the legacy providers right now, uh, they are starkly different. But what we're trying to accomplish is effectively the type of service selection that that we know and we actually have today. Only we want to apply it against all services. And we want new services to be uh, added when they come around, uh, you know, just as quickly as, as, as can possibly be done. Now, some of those services that we were talking about earlier are local. They have local quality. So they might have something to do with your school and your students, uh, your local university and the students there, which may in fact have both local and national relationships. But the way you architect networks, okay, which was really the core of your question, and I avoided it, I apologize, but the, the core of your network, the question is, how do we architect it? Right. Well, we don't architect it the way we used to architect it any more than we would think in terms of the speed as being only one factor of an architecture. You know, it's sort of like saying, on my 1972 Volkswagen Beetle, I put on high-speed performance tires so it can go faster. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) You know, you need the entirety of the architecture. And one of the things that has come forward recently is an architecture choice called Software Defined Networks, Network Function Virtualization. Now, SDN, NFV. Yeah, very good, you know. And and the way this particular kind of new architecture is constructed, it allows us to add and withdraw services uh, at will, rapidly, quickly, and even uniquely to a certain set of customers. Uh, It also allows for automatic provisioning of services such that a customer can go to a web page, perhaps the service provider's web page, and select multiple different services off of that that are instantaneously provisioned to that person's home. Uh, There are many aspects that are coming forward in this particular new architecture, but, you know, (laughs) we don't design 
modern day jets that have buggy whips attached to them. Right. Well, let me just (laughs) let me throw something out that I think is important, which is the idea of what a service provider is. Mm -hmm. Uh, A service provider could be the church down the street. Right. And this and so what would happen is potentially a person who, let's say, has broken a leg and attends this church (laughs) could sign up and and receive the church sermons. And and through the magic of this SDN, you would have a local connection that would be provisioned at a very high capacity to deliver this. The payment would be transacted one way or another way that would be easily, you know, basically be um, abstracted away from the user, which is a different way of saying you wouldn't have to worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, all these sort of things would happen instantaneously and and easily. I mean, that's fundamentally the goal, right? It's fundamentally the goal. But but in this goal, we're also seeing all manner of other changes. I think that one of the ways of looking at a service provider is the service provider's function is really to operate the physical network uh, and to interface with those kinds of services that are requested on. Wait, I would have said the network, assumed that you meant the network operator, like a monopoly network operator operates the physical stuff. Okay. And a service provider is any one of, is what I would have expected. Well, today, today, when you talk about a service provider, you talk about Comcast, you talk about any number of those kinds of legacy providers. And the interesting piece is that we, when, we have, when we use that language, we are implying both their physical network as well as the services over which, uh, over what, that they are in fact selling us. Yeah. Right. So there are really kind of two functions going on. Right. Right. Well, I mean, in fact, with Comcast, you've actually got them separated now. Comcast does physical stuff. Xfinity delivers services. Mm -hmm. Right. And Comcast has other services like NBC television that uh, is is available on many, many systems besides Comcast's uh, network. So we're seeing changes happen at a number of different levels. We're seeing monetization change. between, for example, myself. I happen to be in that uh, group of people who have cut the cord, as they say, okay? And I pay certain services, Netflix, Amazon Prime, the various Hulus, and, and so forth and so on, a subscription base that doesn't go to what used to be the legacy provider collection for video entertainment. Mm-hmm. So a service provider, meaning a person who operates this physical network, in this case, uh, I'm using that term, has an interesting role in the way the monetization structures go forward and in the actual operation of the network itself. So, uh, and those two are are very closely related. Uh, One of the things that might well be the role of a open access service provider is to provide an interface for users to be able to select services that are openly offered across that that network. Uh, We see a little bit of that today in programming guides on smart TVs, on TiVos, on various different video entertainment boxes where they've all got certain kinds of apps. But you know, if, if, for those of you who have tried it, like I have, you know, you can find that it's even confusing between 
how they display the apps on a smart TV, on different smart TVs in your same house, on different devices, Blu-ray players or TiVo mm -hmm. players, and, right. and so on down the line. Wouldn't it be nice to have a service provider that provided an interface that was easy to ne negotiate and navigate uh, and allowed you to select these various different, as we will call them, services, okay, and perhaps interact on them multiply on the same display device, right? Uh, could well be one of the reasons you'd want that service provider's mm. services, if you right. will. Right. But fundamentally, I think we can we can sort of head toward the end of the show with the thought that we can't do any of those things until we get rid of the monopoly on the end user, basically, which currently cable companies tend to have. But the monopoly is created by the physical infrastructure exactly. of those particular things. And and so yes, that that does need to be replaced. You know. Uh, but and and so earlier you mentioned that you you don't see this as coming together as a public public piece. I do. I I don't see how we can avoid it because the the cost of deploying physical infrastructures, multiple physical infrastructures to businesses and to homes, uh, is a foolish expense. Uh, a singular connection today <laughs> well <laughs> provides it all. I'm totally with you on that, but I think anyone who's closely observed our healthcare debates over the past 20 or 30 years <laughs> may argue we can do foolish things for a very long time. <laughs> we can. We can. I'm just very glad that the sewer system that connects my house also connects your house and my neighbor's houses and so on and so forth. Right. And they really don't care what any of us put down those Right. Particular place. I do still toss urine out my window, though. Just oh, you do. Fun. Oh, good. <laughs> so thank you for coming in. <laughs> for more on open access, follow the tag at uninetworks.org. Learn more about Eric's firm at lookoutpt.com. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at uninetworks.org. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at communitynets. Thank you again to Dickie F. for the music for the show. His song, Florida Mama, is licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening. <laughs>